0: Last week, we began what I'm calling a periodic preaching series on prayer. Using the outline of the Lord's Prayer, we are going to explore Jesus' teaching on prayer and wonder together about what our expectations should be when it comes to praying. Last week, we took a look at the opening of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and considered this relationship of well-being between parent and child this relationship we have with the father of heaven and the way by which god might be trying as a good parent would to save us from ourselves so when we pray to our father in heaven we pray with this openness to change and an openness to to well-being and openness to being saved from ourselves to pray as i said last week, is to change. Actually, I have that phrase cross-stitched onto a bookmark that was cross-stitched by a dear friend of mine, Ruth Nam, and I've had it ever since in my Bible. To pray is to change. Today we consider the next clause in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And our topic this morning will be to pray is to work, to pray is to change, and then today, to pray is to work. And we begin with these words from the letter of Paul to the Philippians, the second chapter beginning at the first verse. Hear the word of God. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourself. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." We pray that you will take these rather imperfect words, formed by an imperfect mind, that they may be an imperfect, yet a reflection still of the word just read and the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen. Over these last couple of weeks, the subject of suicide has made its way onto the front pages of our newspapers and digital media Two icons of food and fashion. Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade unexpectedly took their lives while seemingly on the top of their respective games. Along with reading about the lives of these two and the conjectures around why this could happen, we've read that the suicide rate in America is growing. An increased number of people are choosing to end their lives as a way to deal with the complexity, the confusion, the despair, the pressure, and the harshness of life. Chances are the reality of suicide has visited each of us in one degree or the other. I've officiated over several memorial services of those whose attempts were tragically successful. I have a cousin who committed suicide. We've had a staff member years ago who was successful in her attempt. The attempts to explain suicide can fill a library, but the truth is the web of reasons behind suicide are as particular as each individual that contemplates it or attempts it. Much of having to do with clinical depression or anxiety that convinces people that there is no other escape. Depression is the great liar. Its toxic pain convinces its victims that things are not going to get better and that they have no cheering section and they have no people who really want them around anymore. That it's better that they go away. It is never better that anybody goes away. Nothing could be a bigger lie. Depression, however, is not a feeling one that can simply snap out of. It is a serious health issue, no less than cancer or Alzheimer's, and it is essential to get treatment. To remember that depression is a liar and tells you things that are not true. It is best to reach out to those who love you, and professionals who will tell you that you are going to get better and will prescribe the appropriate treatment and medication to get you there. Start with Samaritan Counseling right here at Church of the Palms as a potential resource. I could spend the rest of the morning telling you stories of those who have felt so bad as to contemplate suicide and have reached out for help, have gotten treatment, have gotten better, and are now living the best of lives, thankful that they have chosen life, it will get better. Now, when tragedy does strike and we hear of a person's suicide, whether we know him or her or not, it invariably gives us pause, or at least it should. And part of the pause it gives us is this contemplation over the unseen and untold story of another person's life. We never fully know, do we, what is going on inside another person's soul? Our belief, our basis of judgment on the nature of another human being is extremely limited. The available data to us is minuscule. And yet, at the same time, it is this human inclination to quickly characterize and categorize our fellow human beings, to dress them up in some costume that conforms to the character that we imagine them to be and to expect them to remain inside that box that we have created for them. Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade, we imagined, were living on top of the world. I remember reading years ago about the Broadway production of On the Waterfront, performing before a packed house at the Brooks Atkinson Theater in Midtown Manhattan. And as the final act was coming to a close, one of the actors on stage, Jerry Grayson, had a heart attack. A real heart attack. A near death heart attack. But what followed was one of those surreal moments in which the audience assumed that the actor was still in character. No one rushed the stage because he, they thought he was following the script. And so they grew very confused when the cast began to call for a doctor. Still a delay. What a strange turn of the story, they wondered. A shift from character to real human being in crisis was too difficult a turn to take in one moment. Finally, a doctor came, performed CPR, and Mr. Grayson, thank the good Lord, survived the episode and went on to act for 20 more years. It's true, isn't it? We have this tendency to put people into character, to to scrap together a few one-dimensional, unverified pieces of information that we have in our minds, and we costume them that that character that we've created, and we act toward them accordingly, often as critical audience. And it is this inclination within us that makes us vulnerable to these forces of polarity, these forces that want us to make people into one thing or the other, these forces that want to label a person one label or the other, these forces that want to put people into one box or the other, these forces that make it easier and easier for us to stop doing the hard work of understanding the full extent, the full complexity, the full mystery of another human being. And so all of a sudden, people become no longer the creations of God, but they become the creations of our own imagination. And so there's a big part of me that wonders that when Jesus tells us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, if a big part of what Jesus is trying to implant in our brain is this vision that God has for his creation, that when God created humankind in God's own image, it is this image of God that God never stops looking at. that as much as we might distort this image within ourselves or as much as we might distort the image in other people, it is always the will of God to restore the kingdom of His image bearers into right order. On earth as it will be in heaven. So to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, is to sign up for the work of engaging not the costume, not the character of another person, but the divine image, the amago dei of the person, the person of the person. To pray is to work. To pray is to make ourselves available for the power of the Spirit to resist the forces that pull us apart from the mischaracterized opposition and to instead be drawn toward the image of God, the amago Dei, that the good Lord has always seeking to see from the heavens above. This command to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. Wow, that's a lot because we sure do love ourselves. You see, here's the thing about prayer. When we pray, right, when we pray to this loving Father in heaven, when we pray, we expect to be heard, we expect to be understood, and we expect to be taken seriously, right? I mean, why pray if you don't expect to be heard, if you don't expect to be understood, if you don't expect to be taken seriously? It's the core of a healthy relationship. It's why we love God, because we know that God hears us, God understands us, and God takes us seriously. Well, if we don't believe those things, we're not going to pray. Well, so when we pray to the Heavenly Father with every expectation to be changed into this relationship of well-being, it should come as no surprise when we ask for the kingdom to come and for God's will to be done, that when, when that comes, it is, comes with the work of ensuring within our own sphere that every person is heard. Every person is sought to be understood. If every person is taken seriously. Think of that. The work of taking every person seriously Seriously, the work of trying to find the image of God inside every living human soul, the work of erasing the caricatures we create and addressing the amago Dei, the image of God inside every single soul. I suppose it's what the Apostle was getting at when he tells the Philippians who were experiencing a good amount of conflict. He tells the Philippians in humility, regard others as better than you. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interest of others. And let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. So I can't help but think of what took place just a few miles away from here on the campus of New College. Many of you read this story happened a year or so ago of how Derek Black, a young White nationalist and unabashed leader and heir apparent in the movement of white nationalism, a movement that advocates for the separation of the races and the suspicion of every culture other than European descent an anti-Semitic force that denies the Holocaust. Even Derek Black, a first year student, came to New College and for a short time remained undercover. But then he got outed on the Internet And you can imagine the response of his fellow students, right? Shaming, name-calling, threats. He feared for his life, and many thought that was a good thing. But then one Matthew Stevenson, a fellow student and a Jew, invited Derek to join him for Shabbat dinner. Matthew had made it his practice to host a Shabbat dinner in his room and to invite his friends every Friday night. And so when hearing of Derek's outing and not counting himself any better, he invited the opposition to dinner, to Shabbat dinner. And that's it. Just dinner, not to debate, not to inquisition, not to the trial of ideas, just to dinner. And a potential friendship. And Derek accepted. And he attended the first week. And the second week. And the third week. And all the other weeks over the course of two years. And without talking about the elephant in the room, the two formed a deep friendship. And then came the cognitive dissonance, right? Right? How can I hate someone I love? And soon afterward, Derek renounced his membership in the white supremacy movement, and the two young men had been around the nation speaking together about their story. So when asked, What prompted you, Matthew, to invite Derek to your Holy Supper? Said Matthew, Well, each person has the divine spark, right? Each person has the divine spark. I invited the divine spark and Derek to my table. A couple of years ago we had some spirited conversation here at Church of the Palms about a couple of issues with which people had great disagreement. Rather than sweeping it under the rug, we talked about it, had listening sessions, and we learned something we already knew about people of good faith. They can disagree. People of good faith compassionately disagree. Presbyterians especially compassionately disagree. And on one, more than a couple of occasions, I learned of people who had been for years sitting right next to each other in church every Sunday morning, thinking that they were of like mind with each other, only to find that they weren't. But because they were of like heart they didn't allow their minds to sabotage their relationship. Like the one guy, true story, like the one guy who told the other guy that he wasn't in favor of homosexuality, assuming a nod of agreement from his friend. Surprise. I couldn't disagree with you more, came the response. Someday I'd like to introduce you to my gay son. Cognitive dissonance. Lots of work to do, right? To hold on to each other. And these two men did. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To pray is to work. When asked how prayer works, Pope Francis put it this way, you pray for the hungry, then you feed them. This is how prayer works. You pray for the hungry, then you feed them. This is how prayer works. And of course, the truth is to be human is to be hungry, right? To be hungry for something. For food, for hope, for health, for acceptance. We're all hungry for something. Most of all, we're just hungry for someone to recognize the divine spark inside of us and to take us seriously. Makes me think of those immigrant children who are being taken from their parents along the border. Each one right with a divine spark. It doesn't matter where you are on the political spectrum. That has nothing to do with it. We pray for them, right? And we do something for them. We call our congressmen. We give money to a children's organization. We sign up for tutoring. We do something for the children. Why? Because we pray and because they're human beings. So there's a story at the end of 1 Samuel that always stands out to me as one of the great moments in human civilization. It's a story about King Saul. King Saul was one of the first kings of Israel, was the first king of Israel, and it turns out to be a rather tragic figure. He makes a bunch of mistakes and becomes, for the most part, his own worst enemy. Not only does he have enemies outside of Israel, he has almost as many, if not more, inside of Israel. Nobody likes Saul. Starving for grace, he dies an ignominious death in battle by falling on his own sword. Suicide, in other words. And the enemy, upon finding his body and without going into graphic detail, desecrate it and leave it for the birds. But that's not how the story of Saul ends. The story of Saul ends when a little Israelite village called Jabesh, about 50 miles away, hears of Saul's demise and of what the enemy has chosen to do with his body and the bodies of his sons. Remembering years before the one good thing that Saul had done to protect their village, the writer tells the end of Saul's story this way. When the inhabitants of Jabesh heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men set out, traveled all night long, and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall at Bethshon, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there and then they took their bur- their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted 7 days fasted 7 days all the valiant men all the civilized men it takes valor to make a civilization it takes valor to take another human being seriously even one with whom you disagree the one who's his own worst enemy. The one who wonders if she can live another day. The one who voted for the other guy. The one whose lifestyle seems so different. The one who does not know whether he will see his parents again. The one who is so hungry to be fed just like the rest of us. The one with the divine spark. The amago Dei. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for the hungry, and then we feed them. This is how prayer works.